So, tonight we are at lesson six, and we have a lot of ground to cover. Um, we're going to do, and, and what I suggest you do is, what I'm going to do is just open your Bible, starting to uh, actually start around Genesis chapter 27, okay? And we're going to cover several chapters, so I'm just going to give you the 10,000 foot view. If your Bible's anything like mine, the headings kind of tell the big picture. So when you get to Genesis 27, you'll see that that's where the story of Jacob and Esau really starts to take hold. Um, Jacob and Esau were twins. Esau was born just a little before Jacob, and so technically he was the eldest. And around the time they were old enough to receive their birthright in the form of a blessing, um, Jacob and his mother concocted a little scheme because Isaac's eyes were really bad and he couldn't see very well. And Esau was a red, hairy man. And so, and, and he liked to hunt and he liked wild game and all this and and, you know, he just smelled like the great outdoors, and that's putting it in the nicest way, I'm sure. And so the scheme was basically uh, that Jacob tricked Esau into giving him the birthright. And then um, Esau, because, it's, because his hunger and his stomach was more important to him than anything else at the moment. So he was being rather impulsive, and it cost him a lot. So then Jacob goes in to see his father and he's covered himself in camel hair and stuff and he's made sure he smells right. And, and uh, so Isaac proceeds to give Jacob the birthright. And then when Esau finds out that he has lost his birthright to Jacob through trickery, he's mad. And he stays mad. Nice riff. He stays mad. And he's mad for a long time. I mean, that's really important to remember. He was mad for a long, long time. And then you How get... Long? Huh? How long? A long, long time. <laughs> like, like for five chapters. <laughs> he, was, he was mad for five chapters. That's how mad he was. And um, probably 30 years or so. But... Um, so then in chapter 28, Jacob kind of takes his birthright, which includes a, a substantial inheritance, a lot of money, and he goes off and, and kind of begins his life, and uh, this is when he has that dream where he is seeking God, but he's also sort of fighting God over his blessing, and, and so the story says that in his dream, he saw the angels going up and down Jacob's ladder, you know, and he... Um, he wrestles with God, comes away wounded, but he gets God's blessing. And so then God names him Israel. And you remember last week we were talking about how there aren't that many people in the Bible who God gave them their name. And God gave Jacob the name Israel. <coughs> Does anybody remember what that means? The ones who listen to God. And Ishmael is, means the ones God listens to. 
So subtle difference, but so then in chapter 29, you know, Jacob's going through his stuff. We'll just skip that for now. He marries Leah and Rachel. Uh, he loves Rachel. That's his favorite. Laban tricks him into marrying uh, Leah. And this is after he worked several years to earn the right. And it's sort of funny because the same sort of stunt that he pulled got pulled on him because when the lights are out, it's a little harder to tell how these things are really going down. And he got caught, you know, <laughs> I was trying to find a way. He consummated the marriage and then it was, it was for keeps, you know. So then he had to work another seven years so that he could have Rachel. But then that set up a very interesting Old Testament uh, drama where you have Joseph and uh, Benjamin who are the sons of Rachel and then you have the other guys and there's a little bit of bad blood over that and Jacob's children come along there's a whole story there you know there's 12 of them They're, they become the 12 tribes and, and the half tribe of Manasseh is the one that uh, is a result of Joseph and his Egyptian wife. So they're only half related to Israel. Uh, Jacob's flocks increase in chapter 29. He gets pretty rich. And finally, he's had about all he's going to take from Laban because Laban is just a jerk. And so he escapes one day from Laban, takes all his stuff and... You know, Laban, Laban's pretty mad because he's been getting a lot of free labor. He's been getting a lot of bonus property and wealth. And he's pretty much manipulated Jacob. And, you know, the manipulation had its benefits to Laban. And so eventually he leaves. And then you get to chapter 32. And in chapter 32, now, between chapter 31 and 32, there's something I want you to consider for a moment. And it's in your notes. This is one of those things that comes from the Midrash, or the rabbinic tradition. Eliphaz is the son of Esau, and that's Jacob's brother. And, uh, and his concubine, Timnah, and they have a child named Amalek. Now, Eliphaz, according to rabbinic tradition, had been charged by his father Esau to avenge... Esau against Jacob. It was like, okay, son, I want you to make it your mission to get even with this kid because he has been a pain in the neck to me since day one. And then he tricks me out of my birthright and it's, it's nasty. And remember what I was telling you about looking up the names of the 12 sons of Israel versus the 12 sons of Esau. And you find that all the names of Esau's sons mean things like, you know, hunter, trapper, uh, digger of dirt, you know. I mean, they're all people who are like, should be living in a mining camp in Colorado in, in the 1800s, you know what I mean? They're just rough. And all the names of Jacob's sons are different. They're more, you know, they have meanings that imply that they're on a journey with God. And it's all very interesting, but the main thing you want to keep in mind is, is that Esau has been mad for several chapters now. 
And the rabbinic tradition says that Esau charged Eliphaz with getting even for him. But then in chapter 32, Jacob is ready to make peace with Esau. Keep in mind, Jacob had this close encounter with God and it changed him. You know, and so this is this is a reminiscent of the whole idea of repenting. You know, I mean, he's repented. He's like, that's a pretty dirty trick I pulled, God. You know, I'm feeling a little guilty about that. And so he wants to make peace with Esau. Now, what's interesting is that the rabbinic tradition and the scriptures tie together in that Jacob's plan is to take a huge amount of his wealth with him and offer it to Esau, Right. A big chunk of change is going to Esau as a peace offering. And the rabbinic tradition says that this was because Eliphaz, the son of of, uh, Esau, had gone to Jacob and said, I'm supposed to kill you. And Jacob said, and this sounds like Jacob, doesn't it? You know, a man without wealth is as good as dead anyway. So how about if I just, you know, pay you off and... You can tell him, yeah, I'm dead, you know, as far as he's concerned. And so there's a parallel there because he does present himself to his brother, but he brings more or less a bribe. So he's headed towards this encounter with his brother. He's got all his people and Esau's got all his people. And it's liable to be a great, huge civil war. But in turn, in, instead, it turns into a peace treaty and a and a. Uh, uh, summit you know a peace summit and the peace is established between Esau and Jacob but his kids are still mad about this now can anybody relate to that I mean really Hatfields and McCoys somebody told me they just ate at the Hatfield and McCoy restaurant why are we still talking about those people (laughs) you know Because it's fascinating that people can stay mad at each other that long through multiple generations. And then you have to realize it's going on all over the world. Uh, Remember back in the 90s, right after the Soviet Union collapsed? That's when we had the genocide in Serbia uh, and, and Yugoslavia and all this. And that's because these people were mad at each other before the Soviets took over. But then they had a common enemy in the Soviets, and the Soviets kept a tight rein on things. And go ahead, Donna. Well, this might be I, something you knew a little bit about. I, yeah, I, I researched some of this because I saw a picture of an elderly man, who, and it was a Muslim couple, elderly man pushing his wife in her wheelchair, and she had a paper sack on. And it was like, that's their sole possession. Why are the Serbs trying to kill them? It just didn't make sense. Mm -hmm. And I ended up doing a country study, and I found that um, Tito, first of all, was a really smart man because he recruited people from everywhere. But if you go way back, the Croats and Slovenes were Christianized by the Catholics. The Serbs were Christianized by Orthodox. And in the middle, you have Bosnia Herzegovina, where there, there was clash. I don't care what church you go to. It, I don't care that you read your Bible every day and talk to Jesus and love him. If you don't go to my church, you're not really saved. And eventually, 
the Bosnians were introduced to Islam when the Turks came in, and that was something they could really believe in. So now you have these Muslims in the middle, and the Turks would come up periodically to take the best and the brightest of the Christian children. But if you were Muslim, you were free, and they wouldn't worry, bother you. And every now and then the Serbs would rise up in rebellion, and the Turks and the Bosnians would put that rebellion down. Mm -hmm. And so you move forward, and that hatred just stayed and stayed. Now this is like from 
I mean, how many of us are still mad at France? And, and remember, remember back in the 90s when, when everybody was changing the French fries to American fries, right? Because we were mad at the French because they didn't want to support us with Desert Storm, right? You know, and, and then your kids, you know, my kids were really little in the 90s. And if I were really gung-ho against the, the French, then, you know, can you imagine what my kids grow up thinking? I don't know why, but I don't like them French people, you know. Why? Well, dad never liked him. And dad's a, you know, he knows everything. So it must be true. You know, I didn't, yeah. I probably did tell him that, actually, yeah. No, no, I said your kids say that. Oh, well, no, if I told you that, I'd, you know, lightning bolt. No. Um, But, you know, it's interesting because because a lot of that goes... I'll give you one, and, and I don't want to go off on a tangent here, but I mean, it's just like from my own personal experience, I've never cared for, in football, I love watching football and everything, but I've never cared for East Coast teams and West Coast teams, like the Patriots, right? And the reason is because my dad said something to me back when I was really young and easily influenced by your father, especially, that made sense to me. East Coast teams and West Coast teams have a lot of money, and advertisers and network executives and everything, they like the East and West Coast teams because they have huge markets. So who do they want to see in the Super Bowl, the Indianapolis Colts and the the St. Louis Rams or whatever? Or do they want to see a New York versus L.A.? Because, you know, the advertisers want to see the big money, big, huge market. And, And so my dad explained that to me, and it made sense to me. And ever since then, I've just said I don't care for East Coast and West Coast teams. You know, give me Midwestern teams because because I can, you know, I like the Steelers, but they're this side of the Alleghenies. You know, I grew up in Pittsburgh. So, you know, but but I like Green Bay. I like, you know, Minnesota Vikings. I like Indianapolis Colts. I like the Cubs. You know, I like I mean Cubs. I mean, the Bears rather. But but, you know, I like these teams because they're Midwest. And why do I like them? Well, mainly because my dad influenced me. So you see how that happens. And you can all tell a story like that if you think about it. You know, why are you more conservative or more liberal? Probably because you were heavily influenced by those kinds of people in your life. And you love them and their opinion matters to you, so you begin to shape your view around it. All that being said, we have a son whose mission was to destroy Israel and all of Israel's people. And then he has a son named Amalek. And Amalek grew up in Esau's household. And as the... I love this, imbibing Esau's pathological hatred of Jacob's descendants along the way. Imbibing, you know, it's like getting drunk on the hatred. And his offspring became the nation of Amalek, and they lived to the south of the land of Israel in what is now known as the Negev Desert. We won't be going to the Negev. We'll be able to see it from where we're going, but we won't be going there. So then you have the Midrash, which says that Jacob escaped from Esau and fled to his uncle Laban. And you know this because we just covered it. Esau sent Eliphaz to pursue and kill Jacob, his uncle, who was his rabbi also. I, don't, I didn't know that, but that, this, is a, this is a rabbinical commentary. So I guess they want to make sure the rabbis look good in the story. And when they met, Jacob implored Eliphaz not to kill him, but Eliphaz challenged that He had his father's instructions to fulfill, and Jacob gave him everything that he had and said to Eliphaz, take what I have for a poor man is counted as dead. And Eliphaz was satisfied. He left his uncle 
and Rabbi poor, but still alive. So that, that's what the Midrash says. The interesting thing is, is that we're really tracking anecdotal history from the Midrash and biblical history that indicates that the line of Eliphaz carries on the hatred of Israel, okay? So then we jump to, just to finish our little scan, chapter 33, Jacob meets Esau. Chapter 35, Jacob returns to Bethel. Uh, then we read in 36, that thing we read about last week about the Esau's descendants in chapter 36. And if you look in there, of course, you'll see Eliphaz. And um, he's the child of, of uh, Esau and Timnah. And uh, the rulers of Edom, I, I'm going to get into this at another time, maybe next week, maybe the week after. But keep in mind the Edomites are no friend to the world or Israel especially either. And so when we talk about Edomites, we're still talking about this chain, uh, this, this lineage of people who are dedicated to the destruction of Israel, okay? So Edomites don't like Israel, so it's a people group, but it's also connected with this uh, ancestry here. Then Joseph has his dreams. Uh, Joseph is sold by his brothers, and then uh, we get you know, out of that whole area. So I want you to jump now to Exodus chapter 17, verse 8. Exodus 17, verse 8. And some of what I'm trying to tell you here will hopefully start to come together. Now, 17, <coughs> verse 8 is where the uh, Israelites have finally been released from Egypt. Now most, I'm guessing everybody here knows the story of the Israelites in Egypt and the great exodus. And so they're leaving and in 17 verse 8, as they're escaping, um, the Amalekites attack them. So as soon as they get out of range of the, the uh, Egyptians. Anybody remember why the Egyptians stopped being a problem? They all drowned. They went swimming and they didn't come back. Yeah, it was, it was bad. Um, just as an aside, I often think about that. You know, it's a little hard for us to wrap our minds around, but if you could put it in perspective, what happened to the Egyptians would be like the American army or American military, the entire American military, air, sea, ground, everything being wiped two-thirds of it wiped out in one single incident including the joint chiefs of staff yeah yeah i mean what happened to egypt was the utter destruction of their whole power base in one fell swoop now i always think that's amazing even though this isn't where we're going tonight because you wonder how in the world the people of israel could witness that by the hand of God, and then, you know, three weeks later complain because it's hot out here, and back in the Egypt we had something better to eat than this stuff, and you know, you think, how can they be? Well, they're ignorant. They're like children. They've been dumbed down because if you want slaves, you know, they didn't want, remember in American history, 
They didn't want American slaves to learn to read because if they got smart and they learned things about American culture, you know, which is why, um, oh, come on, brilliant man, was an escaped slave, great. No, anyway, I'm just saying, it wasn't about his color, it was about how they kept his, they kept him simple. Frederick Douglass, thank you. That's who I was trying to think of, Frederick Douglass. Brilliant, brilliant man. If you've never read anything he's written, he was brilliant. And he was self-educated, which is amazing. But, but the interesting thing is, is that anytime you have slaves, you don't want them to feel like they have any power over their lives. You want them to feel powerless. You want to keep them oppressed. And the best way to oppress anybody is, you know, like Hitler did, burn the books, don't let anybody. You know, the people who were uh, supporting Hitler and, and the Reich, especially because Hitler was a figurehead, but anybody who was supporting the Reich in Germany was a slave. They just didn't know it. And the reason I can say that is because the same tactics were used on the people of Germany to get them to get behind the Hitler and the Reich as you would use with slaves. First thing you want to do is burn all the books, get rid of the smart people, get rid of the conscientious uh, clergy. The only clergy that didn't get killed in Germany were the ones who went along with the Reich and supported this twisted version of Luther's writings that they used to justify what they were doing. So you get rid of all the people that might tell them that they're really being led down the terrible path. And so 400 years plus, because we only know about the 400 that are named in the Old Testament here, but multiple generations of Israelites have been enslaved in Egypt and they have perfected the slavery. They've perfected the, the ignorance. And so when you read some of the things that come after the Exodus, all the weird things that you see in, in uh, uh, Numbers, for example, and people always laugh because this is my favorite example. There's instructions in the book of Numbers that they shouldn't eat roadkill because it's probably going to kill them. And you think, now why would God give them instructions about eating something that's been dead on the side of the road for several days? Because they're really that dumb. They really don't know any better. They've been kept ignorant. They've been kept like cattle. Because that's what you do with slaves, especially if you have a solidly established slave culture. This is relevant because what's being taught in this story that we're looking at is how they're supposed to respond to Amalekites whenever they run into them, okay? So in chapter uh, 17, verse 8, it says, the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim, and Moses said to Joshua, choose uh, some of your men and go out and fight the Amalekites, and tomorrow I will stand on the hill with my staff in God, of God in my hands. And you remember the story because they ended up holding his arms up because his arms started getting tired. I could have used that last night when I was putting up a new garage door opener. Man. <laughs> like, George, can you come over here and hold my arm up for me? <laughs> Wish I'd have thought of that. <laughs> so Nathan had to help me instead. He, he just picked up everything I kept dropping and putting it back on my tray for me. <laughs> Good kid. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses ordered and uh, Aaron and Hur uh, went up on the hill and they held his hands up and they eventually wiped them out. They defeat them. So this group of people, Moses is one of the very few who's really educated and, and knows about 
the way things are. Um, it changes the way you look at the story of Moses and the Exodus when you realize that he was a Hebrew who had an education. He was like a Frederick Douglass. He was, he was a guy who had vastly superior education just in the worldly sense to the people that were enslaved in Egypt. Plus he has this very personal relationship with God. So yeah, Moses has to tell them, okay, look, Malachites, they're dedicated to your destruction. As soon as you came out of slavery, think about it, as soon as the Soviet Union collapsed, the Amalekites show up because they want to pick up where they left off before the Egyptians were protecting them from their enemies. So as long as they were slaves in Egypt, the Amalekites weren't going to mess with them because they'd be taking on you know, the, the labor supply for all of the greatest powerful supernation in the world at the time. So as soon as they escape, as soon as it's clear that the Egyptians can't intervene anymore, the Amalekites show up and they take on Israel. So they haven't gotten over this. Now, if you read Deuteronomy 15, verses 17 and 18. Deuteronomy. How many of you know what Deuteronomy is all about? Deuteronomy is, it means what it says. It's 10 talks, 10 sermons. Deuteronomy, we're going to look at 15, starting at verse 17. Deuteronomy 15. Um, Deuteronomy, the word Deuteronomy means the 10 sermons, and it's referring to 10 sermons or lectures that Moses preached before he died. So he's basically, it's his manifesto. God ordained, you know, God given manifesto. So he's telling them everything they need to know. We don't know how long it took. The Bible seems to indicate that he spent about a week giving them these lectures. So, Deuteronomy 15, verse 17. Uh, mm hmm. Prints even smaller when I'm wearing contacts and using cheaters. Then take an awl and push it through his earlobe. Okay, so this is. Uh, why did I get there? Did I put the wrong thing? Oh, 17, 18. Let's see. What am I trying to tell you? Uh, they were. They. I think I may have typoed. Uh, yeah, yeah. Sometimes the uh, sometimes they were like wedges or something. Yeah, but let's see. Push it through. Yeah. So this is a really interesting thing. Is like if you have a covenant with somebody, the way you sign a contract. Aren't you glad you don't do this with car sales, George? <laughs> Basically. You know, or, or it would probably, it would be your finance guy. So you could go, you go to the finance guy's office and he's got all these little holes in his doorpost on his office because every time somebody signs a contract, they have to step up, put their earlobe on the door and he goes, you know, pierces their ear into his door, which basically says, I own you now. <laughs> and isn't that what debt is, by the way? It's someone owning you, you know, until you pay off the debt. Uh, the Bible is actually really opposed to, to lending and, and debt, by the way. It's a natural part of our 
society now, but it, it is actually opposed to that. So, uh, but what what's going on here? Um, do not consider it hardship to set your servant free because I, I am sure that I typoed and I'm sorry. Um, so what I'm going to get to here, I'm, I'm going to fix this, but I want to keep going. Um, the point is, is that they were reminded in Deuteronomy by uh, Moses that they were never to let up on the Amalekites that Moses tells them, you know, he tells them as they're entering the desert and beginning their 40 years of wandering. And he tells them at the end of their water at wandering, he says, you know, when we first get in there, the word is don't take nothing off the Amalekites, kick them, kick them hard. Then at the end of the wandering where he's not permitted to go into the promised land, he gives his sermons to the whole nation about this is my manifesto. This is what I want you to, to the most important things I want you to remember about all these years you spent with me. And one of the things he says as he's preparing to go up on the mountain and die is don't take no crap off of the Amalekites, kick their butts. That's, that's Dan phrasing, but that's, and, and I've just obviously got my reference wrong, and I will endeavor to correct that for you. Uh, I think I just typoed, but I was working on this up until just a little while ago. Wednesdays are pretty hectic, not that I want to make excuses. Now, when you go to Numbers 33, 40, which is back a little ways, there's just a really little basic reference here, but I want you to hear it because this will make something... Verse, uh, chapter 33 of Numbers, Numbers 33, verse 40. And I want you to see that it refers to the Canaanite king of Arad who lived in the Negev of Canaan. And he heard that the Israelites were coming. Arad and the Canaanites this is, this is an area, and it's a city-state, and it's in the Negev, and it's referring to the same land where the Amalekites lived, where the people of Esau settled. So it's this, this, this is where this people group originated from, is down in the Negev, and it's in the area between Egypt and Jerusalem, basically, is where they live. And... You will probably remember as, we, as you think forward that the other group that came from down there that was always a thorn in David's side, was always a pain uh, for him, was um, the Philistines. So they go by different names, but it's still the same people group that we're talking about. So just keep in mind that the Canaanite king of Arad, he, he figures it's time for him to act against Israel. And the reason is, again, the uh, fact that Aaron died, and Aaron was the high priest, Moses' brother, and as long as Aaron was living, and this is rabbinic tradition again, there was a cloud of protection around the wandering Jews of the Exodus, meaning that, and you remember, they had this cloud that was always present, that was God there by day, and they had the pillar of fire by night, and that was a pretty good way to keep the enemies away, you know. You know, it did, it did a pretty good, you know, it's, it's like bug repellent. It's, you know, it's like cooking up a big fire in the woods when you don't want the bugs to eat you alive. I mean, you know, and it, this one just happens to be God. 
you know, and he just happens to be someone that these heathen out there that want to destroy Israel are a little afraid of. What with him wiping out the entire military power and the Joint Chiefs of Staff of the most powerful nation in the world. Donna? Um, that was supposed to be Deuteronomy 25. 25. Thank you so much. That would explain my typographical error. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So let's just check that real quick. And I'm so glad that you came to my rescue. Uh, I was multitasking today. Uh, again, I, Deuteronomy 25, and we're looking at verses 17 and 18. And when you know, that makes a whole lot more sense because in one of his 10 sermons, Moses says, remember what the Amalekites did to you on the way when you came out of Egypt and when you were weary and worn out and they met you on your journey and attacked you who were lagging behind and they had no fear of God. So what's he telling them on the way out of the wilderness 42 years later is this is still a top priority, avoid contact with the Amalekites. So now I want you to read Samuel, 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15. And 1 Samuel 15. That's the whole chapter. This is a really important chapter, so I want to read the whole thing with you, okay? Because this is going to really set the stage for where we go from here starting next week, all right? Samuel said to Saul, remember who Saul is? He's the, the Israelites have decided they want a king. They have emerged from the Exodus and emerged from Joshua's leadership as the most powerful nation in the world. Israel became a powerful nation taking the promised land and on their journey into the promised land, Joshua was instructed to wipe some people groups entirely off the planet dogs cats hamsters parakeets everything had to go other places he said you know get rid of the ones who can fight you but you can keep the slaves you can have the jewels and the you know whatever but certain people groups when they encountered them city states and that kind of thing god instructed joshua to wipe them out so they've taken over and they have become the most powerful nation on earth and they don't like having a theocracy, which is a word for a God-led government, where God's the government, where the Lord himself is governing, and he's talking through prophets and saying, this is how we do business today, you know, and so he uses prophets to communicate his leadership of the nation. And they say to Samuel, we know you talk to God for us and that God gives you all the instructions, but honestly, that's getting kind of passe. All the cool nations have kings. We want a king. And so... God says, if you have a king, you'll regret it. You're going to be sorry if you have a king. But God relents. And so they take Saul. Now, this is another little sociological thing about human nature that I find really fascinating. Saul was tall, good looking, you know, smooth, right? How many politicians who have turned out to be terrible in world history started out getting the job, no offense to the tall people in the room, but how many of them are as tall and good looking as this man right here? And they turn out to be terrible leaders, right? 
But we pick them because we like tall, good-looking guys. We think that somehow they're just going to do a better job, and sometimes they do. But that ain't no guarantee, and the way they pick Saul is a guaranteed failure because this guy was a loser from the get-go, but he sure looked smooth in the beginning. Now, here's what goes down here. So, so Samuel says to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over the people of Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites. For when they did, for what they did to Israel, when they waylaid them as they camped, uh, came out of Egypt. If I misread, it's because I'm having trouble seeing. I'll just tell you that now. Now, uh, now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep camels and donkeys. And y'all thought I was making up that business about dogs, cats, parakeets, everything, right? There it is, right there. And this is direct from God. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at uh, Tel Aim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the uh, I can't make that up. Kenites, thank you. I was going to say something with an R. Which is easier, number one or number two? Neither one. Thanks for getting the joke. If Gunderson was here, he'd laugh. He's my eye doctor. Go away. Leave the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all of the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Canaanites moved away from the Amalekites. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur. There's Havilah and Shur again. Do you remember where you saw that before? Havilah and Shur was the range of Ishmael. Remember? Ishmael and all his people ranged from Hevelah to Shur. Same, same bunch, same people group, right? This is the same group of people who occupied the land between Hevelah and Shur. That's kind of like saying the people who occupied the land between Chicago and Indianapolis, the Indianites, you know, or Indianaites or something like that. So I mean, it's kind of like that. It's a region near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword, but Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle of the fat calves and the lambs and everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I made king that I have made King Saul Saul king <laughs> because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all that night and early in the morning Samuel got up and he went to meet Saul but he was told Saul has gone to uh, Carmel 
And then he has, uh, there he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Can you imagine the gall? I mean, it just, yeah. But Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? Tell me the Bible isn't funny. What is the lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, the soldiers bought them from the Amalekites, or brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to, said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied, what a dope. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the heel of the tribe, the head of the tribe of Israel? You know, I should let someone with better eyesight read, huh? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he set you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites, wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you, uh, did you pounce on the plunder and uh, do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. Didn't he sound like a little kid right there? I did what you said, kind of. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and I brought back Agog, their king. And the soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder the best of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. See how he tries to salvage the situation? Oh, actually, we took those so we could make a sacrifice to God. Right? I mean, how many of you, just so you can relate to this, how many of you have sort of fantasized, you know, if I win the lottery, I'm going to give 10% to the church. That's the first thing I'm going to do. How many of you, right? And let's just say that you're really religious because i'm not sure this is unbiblical but let's just say you're really religious and you say i know i shouldn't be playing the lottery so here's what i'm going to do i'm going to play the lottery but if i win i'm going to give 10 percent to the church that'll make it okay right when they were trying to build this new indiana you know we used to have two conferences in the united methodist church and, and this is just why the united methodist church is getting so absurd in my mind oh darn it that's on the recording well anyway <laughs> it's still true we had just built a multi-million dollar uh, Indiana Conference office, South Indiana Conference office in Bloomington. And they were arguing about whether or not they should build it at that location because the sewage pipes for it would be paid for by money that was raised through gambling. And I said, fine, just put a filter on it and we'll only pay how much percentage actually went from the gambling money because we'll filter that much of the waste I might have said it differently among my friends, but we'll filter the waste and we'll only put through the pipe as much as was not paid for with gambling money. I mean, so sometimes it's a little bit ridiculous. The point being here is that Saul thinks he can smooth it all over with God by saying, well, actually, we were going to give these to God anyway. Right. Samuel says, does the Lord delight burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? 
To obey is better than sacrifice, and to he, to, to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. And may I say, my friends, that that passage right there is as relevant today in the church where we all go to worship God and there are people in every church who worship God like that. They do. They make sacrifices, they go through the motions, but they don't obey the rest of their life. And the beautiful thing is, is after Jesus, you're still saved, but isn't it kind of a poor witness to be disobedient to God after he saves you and to not represent him to the best of your ability by being obedient to God. I mean, that's the point now. Back then, your life and your whole eternal existence was on the line. So then Saul says to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid the men, of the men, so I gave in to them. There's a leadership lesson right there. If you're the king, be the king. And don't let your fellas or your subordinates tell you your job. It doesn't mean you have to be a jerk about it. It just means that you have to say, I understand what my responsibility is and that may conflict with what you want to do. Sorry. In the long run, I'd rather be honest and accountable to the one who I answer to than to you, subordinates. Perfect life lesson there. And so now I beg you to forgive my sin and come back with me so that I can worship the Lord. And Samuel says, you still don't get it. I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king of Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, has given, in, uh, given it to one of your neighbors, the, uh, to one better than you. He who is, to glory, uh, is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind for the, uh, is not the human being that he should change his mind. God is not. Okay, so Saul replies, I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders and my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back with Saul. Saul worshiped the Lord. Then Samuel said, now bring me a Gog, king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him in chains, and he thought, surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, as, the, as your sword has made women childless, so, you, so will your mother be childless among women. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. And Samuel left for Ramah, but Saul went up to his home in Gil, uh, Gilbeah of Saul, uh, yeah, anyway, until the day Samuel died and he did not see Saul again. Okay, so Agog is still alive a day after the total destruction of his people. Midrash, down here, if you go to Esther 3.1, and this is what we're going to finish with tonight. You know, I wrote this down and I tried to time it in my mind as I was writing this with numerous interruptions all day. 
And I kept thinking, I hope I can finish this before 7 o'clock. But if you go to Esther, and this is is cool, and it's a little scary at the same time. All right, where's Esther? Come on, Esther. Esther! Esther! Old Esther's playing in the minors. <laughs> That's really funny if you think about it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm minor prophets, you know. It's funny, I'm having trouble finding it. And I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to be the expert. And it's like, where in the world? I can blame my sight, I guess. Anyway, somebody tell me what Esther 3.1 says. Yeah, what, is, what, does, what does Esther 3.1 say? Okay. Esther 3.1. After these events, came Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamedatha, the Agite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. Haman, the who? Agagite. Uh, he was from the tribe of Amalek. Amalek. The ones that Saul failed to wipe out. So what does this tell us? It tells us that even though they killed everybody except King Agag, he had about 24 hours to live after everybody else was wiped out. And apparently he was busy. Now, This is where the Jews have an answer for that. The rabbinical tradition says that the execution of Agag occurred in one respect just a little too late for had he been killed on one day sooner, that is, immediately upon his capture by Saul, the great peril which the Jews had to undergo at the hands of Haman would have been averted for Agag uh, thereby became progenitor of Haman. Jewish tradition says that the girl that brought him his food while he was chained up in his place of captivity apparently got raped and the line continued and he went to his grave or his to his execution the next day saying <laughs> you think you got rid of all of us remember in that really horrible movie that everybody likes even though it's dumb you know the Mel Gibson movie, and uh, he's a Scottish guy named, you know, uh, yeah, Braveheart, and he's, he's um, I can't think of the guy's name. He was a real character, but the story doesn't match up. And at the very end, you know, he had a little fun with the little uh, the future, queen. future queen, right? And on his deathbed, um, Longshanks, she whispers in his ears, I got good news for you. He's not really gone. There's still a little bit of him left. And that's the joke. And I'm not trying to be crude. I'm just saying that, you know, there's not much that you see in fiction that doesn't have some real orientation in some way or another. So we don't know how it happened, but we know two things for sure from our scripture reading tonight. 
Agag lived 24 hours longer than the rest of his people, and then he was killed, and somehow Haman is descended from him. So we have to assume that somehow he was able to reproduce at least one child before he was executed. I've always assumed somebody was off on a business trip or something. Could be. And, uh, and, and that's not, you know, it's not out of the question, but this part's, this version is a lot more entertaining. <laughs> but the bottom line is, is they were supposed to get rid of these people. They were supposed to wipe them all out, and they didn't. And I don't want to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave you with something unpleasant to mull over in the rest of your evening. Whenever God tells them to wipe out the animals too, that's usually because the animals were somehow involved in things that animals and people shouldn't be involved in. And that's, in, that's the scriptural fact. It's just, the Bible's really an amazing book when you start studying it. And you find out that, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? Did those people really do that? I wish I didn't know. But there's a reason God tells them to get rid of all the animals too. And that's all I'm going to say about that. And so Saul screwed up because he didn't get rid of all the animals and he didn't get rid of Agag. And somehow a person rises to a position where he is about to destroy the entire people of Israel in one fell swoop, and he's a descendant of Agag, which is pretty amazing. And next week, we're going to tell that story and then show how it actually ties directly to Nazi Germany and the whole ethos of the Nazis because they actually thought they were picking up where Haman left off. And some of the Nazis, upon their execution said, oh, cool, this is just like Purim. We thought, we thought that, you know, Purim is the celebration of the deliverance of the people from uh, uh, Haman's treachery. And they celebrate that with Purim, which is basically the celebration of their deliverance and Esther's act and so forth. And the Nazi German, the German Nazis that were the ringleaders of this mass destruction of the Jews, uh, most of them went to their gallows to be executed, proclaiming, look at this, it's just like in the book of Esther. We tried to wipe them out, we lost, and now we're getting hung on the gallows that we set up for them. Just fascinating, isn't it? Have you had enough to make your brain hurt for a while? <laughs> All right, well, focus on the good stuff. And uh, I think personally, in my experience, the Bible is far more believable because of things like this. If it was a fairy tale, you'd have all kinds of reasons to shoot holes in it. But the more you study it, the more you realize nothing could be this bizarre and true if it wasn't legit. At least that's been my experience. George, I ran over a minute. Would you pray us out of here, please? Certainly. Thank you, God, for being my source of life and growth, the mind to which I seek to stay attached. I'm so thankful for your investment in my qualities increasingly grow in me and may those around me increasingly see Jesus through me. Amen. Amen. Good prayer. God bless you everybody. Have a great week. Hope to see you Saturday at the car show and Sunday at church. 10 o'clock in the sanctuary. So you got your box.